You're listening to WNHHLP, 103.5 FM New Haven, streaming live at www.newhavenindependent.org and broadcasting live from our offices on Elm Street. This is another episode of The Tom Ficklin Show with Tom Ficklin. listening to as the intro good morning tom uh this is blue bosa or blue bossa and um and i'm not <laughs> actually sure who it is but um but i know it's one of our local bands we only have local music on this station which we're very proud of and and that's the key that this is although you can listen to the tom ficklin show and i have tom Kratten, Kratten maker with me um but you can listen to the show anywhere in the on the globe for that matter but we're, we're home-based, so from my standpoint, people often ask me, what is the, the show all about? It's local, but it's also planetary. It's, you're, you can be positioned here living somewhere in the New Haven area, but really, regardless of where you might be on the planet, in my mind, Lucy, we're trying to, not, not necessarily we're trying, we are sharing information that in my d- deepest uh, hopes and beliefs and faith are really relevant to wherever you might be on the planet, literally, if you have access to, and by the way, Lucy, how can folks have access to this, even if they're in their, their hut, their, uh, their, their, their ghetto, their, their, their reservation, their, uh, uh, Trump tower, their, their Palisades park. <laughs> sure. Tom. Uh, well, there are a couple of different ways that you can find us. You can go to WNHH community radio on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Facebook, and you can find our information there. You can go to www.newhavenindependent.org where I will post a daily roundup or a a roundup every other day of shows that we've had. And Tom, I'm really proud to say that your show is now a podcast so people can go to iTunes and if they put in the Tom Ficklin show, a podcast will come up with just your audio. Um, I, I think it's probably a great way to spend an evening if someone wants to do it. It's a great way to spend an evening, uh, afternoon uh morning i mean 24 7 365 just a drop summer just, just drop summer uh where i am a man for all seasons a person for all seasons so you know, quit your job divorce your wife or husband or partner and just live live the tom ficklin show for the rest of your life if that doesn't necessarily uh appeal to you let me hope that this this particular program will appeal to you and i think it will in fact i know it will in terms of the season that we're in we're in the seasons of all seasons and I have the pleasure this morning of chatting with Tom Krattenmaker. And Tom is the author of Confessions of a Secular Jesus, Jesus Follower. Confessions of a Confessions a, of a, a secular, secular Jesus Follower. Jesus Follower. Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower. The reason that phrase is is uh, challenging for me to repeat because the 
the contradictions, the, the meaning, the various meanings when you hear the confessions of a secular Jesus follower. What does that mean? And we're going to find out what that means. I was talking to Tom offline about the, the courage, the, uh, the, the fortitude, really, the, 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 if, you can, if you can excuse me by using this expression, Tom, uh, pertaining to you, the, the, I'm going to say that the faith in doing something like this, whatever motivated you to kind of do this, to do this, this book, um, it, it's really fascinating. Confessions, of course, some people might think, oh, you go before court and confess, or you go before your, your, your priest and confess. Um, and then secular, some people will view the world to be sacred only, and not necessarily the, uh, the binary definition, distinction between secular and sacred, but some people will just see the world to be, to be sacred. Everything can be sacred to them. But again, that's, that's a faith claim. And then Jesus, there's multi-platform, multi-definitions, continual debate and discussion about what that, that word Jesus means, separate from even Jesus the Christ. And then follower, that's it's really fascinating in terms of whether people follow things from a blind standpoint, whether people follow things because they need extra guidance, whether people follow things because they're dependent upon others. So for you to kind of choose these words, the sec, what is it again? Confessions of a secular Jesus follower. That's, that's just, just so fascinating. Uh, the book is available. So Tom, let's just jump right into it. I know you, by the way, I've watched some of your offline of some of your, you've been on the speaking tour. You've been on, uh, you've been on conferences. You're a USA Today writer, columnist. Uh, you've, You've interacted with other, with committed religious people in terms of forums. And I know you have to make a disclaimer. You don't have to, but it's helpful for people to know that you're not speaking for the Yale Divinity School. So I want to give you a chance to get that out of, out of the way also first. Yeah, you're very perceptive. So first of all, Tom, thank you very much for this conversation today. I really appreciate your interest in my book and my ideas, and I appreciate the work you do. And uh, yes, um, people who know Yale Divinity School, which is my employer, I'm glad to say, People who know the school know that it's a Christian divinity school, so I try to make it clear to everybody that my location on the theological spectrum is indicative of nothing about the divinity school, which is and will remain a Christian divinity school, and um, an amazingly brilliant one at that. And the fact that you are comfortable, I shouldn't say the fact, but from my perception, the the reality in my perception that you are comfortable in writing this book and still working for that institution, and that institution not consider you to be apostate or or a or or rebel rouser gets to be accepted in that environment that to me is really 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 impressive for our audience to know but let's 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 jump right into it i was a friend of mine this morning robert gibson had on his facebook page uh this particular diagram tom and it says it's a picture of jesus the it's it's a picture of who we think jesus looked like and it says love your enemies do good to those who hate you but jesus what about what if, what about if they're Muslim? And then the picture says, okay, I'm going to start over from the beginning. Let me know where, 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 where I lost you. And, and, and literally, yeah, that's brilliant. literally Robert Gibson, a good friend, I had that on his Facebook page today. Um, so in the Huffington Post, you had, there was an article, five reasons why I am a secular Jesus follower. And you mentioned the first one was, I have been inspired to hang out with the wrong people. I have been inspired to hang out with the wrong people. What does that mean? That's been an important part of um, my story as somebody who's been um, engaging with issues around religion and public life in our culture for uh, well over a decade now. Something I've engaged as a writer with these columns I've written for USA Today over the years. And then um, something I've done on a friendship level, too, with a lot of the people I've gotten to know. But one thing that I'm really grateful for 
about my life, and I do attribute it to Jesus being in my head and my heart, is that I really am committed to connecting with people who are not part of my group, however you would define group. And um, one um, area where this has played out really powerfully and beneficially for me has been relationships with the Muslim community. So as you might know, Tom, I was in Portland, Oregon for most of the past decade. I was working there. Um, A lot of the columns I wrote occurred during that time period. And when I was in Portland, I really connected with the Muslim community there. It started out with um, needing to interview a great person named Wajdi Saeed for a column I was doing about the wrongs of Islamophobia. Wajdi's a great guy. He um, runs an Islamic academy in Portland, and he's very active in interfaith dialogue and friendship making in Portland. And I got to know him because I interviewed him for a column, and then the relationship continued from there. And he invited me to come out to their school numerous times to talk to the teachers and kids. He invited me to these great um, Muslim community potluck dinners that occurred on Saturday nights. They had me speak a couple of times, and then I even got an award from them, Friend of the Muslim Educational Trust. And that meant so much to me. I mean, that really um, resonated with my idea of who I want to be as a person, friend of the Muslim community. So I was happy about that. But then my relationship building in more recent years extended to the evangelical Christian community, which is also not my world. And it's also involved my connections with people in the LGBT community and and many others. And when I reflect on that, I'm really grateful for these experiences. And um, I do attribute it to the Jesus following that sort of infected my, my head and my heart. Hmm. But could you, could you not have appreciated and embraced those experiences without going to the, to the Jesus narrative, to the Jesus archetype, to the Jesus possibility? Absolutely, because I think those things are right. What, I think what, those are the right thing to do, whatever source you may turn to or whatever source may compel you. But um, when I use my rational thought process, my power of um, observance, experience, I think um, I can see and I think we can see that this is the kind of stuff the world needs now because there are so many ugly divisions and so much misunderstanding. So, Tom, I'm very pragmatic about these things. I don't care where the heck people can source this insight and this inspiration and this ethical imperative. For me, I find Jesus to be the most compelling source, but the figure of Jesus is not the only source. Mm-hmm. Oh, great, great. So, so we're going we're gonna to drill down deep in terms of the, the, the Jesus sources as uh, Tom has, has, has articulated. Um, and I really appreciate your, your talking about the, perhaps, if not the universality, universality but the, the options available to people. I'm a fan, um, Tom, of the William James, the varieties of the religious experience mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. in preparation for this show. I was kind of reading, reading about that. But I really appreciated your book, and the title is? The Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower. And can I um, say something about that for a moment? About what? The title. Oh, the title. Yes, I think I think our audience, you keep, uh, I, I think our audience has, has caught on that, that. I think the title itself is, is so provocative. So please, it's provocative, rich. It's yeah. rich so, so please. Well, there's a tension, obviously, between the words. And I find that some people thrill to it because they think, oh, this is awesome. This is fascinating. I mean, just think about the juxtaposition of the word secular and Jesus, for yeah. instance. I mean, those aren't the only interesting juxtapositions. But that's an interesting one, because normally people think about Jesus and engage with Jesus in a religious way. So normally the word secular would not be paired up with Indeed. the word Jesus. Indeed. And so that's um, what's 
either incredibly wrong about what I'm doing, and sure, some people have thought that, or that's what's really original and inspiring and fascinating about what I'm doing. So unfortunately, because this is radio, we can't show people the book cover, but I thought my publisher did a really good mm-hmm. job mm-hmm. with the cover design where they use this really kind of old-looking, gothic-looking typeface for most of the title, but they set off the word secular in a completely different, ultra-modern-looking yes, typeface and in a different color, because that's indeed where the energy and the tension of the book comes from. It's that juxtaposition of these words. Yes. And it, and so it, Jesus yes. and secular, then the word confessions, yes, yes. as you pointed out, and then the word follower, too, because when most people think of who's a Jesus follower, they'll think of Christians, mm-hmm. and they might make that assumption. Indeed. And so it's um, intriguing for people to see secular in that context as well. Indeed. And, uh, and as, you, as you indicated so well, that words do convey energy, not to get too theoretical, but in my mind, words do con- convey energy, either, let's say, positive or negative. So it's so, uh, so important to have you elaborate on that. This is the holiday season, and whether you believe that Jesus was killed by a certain ethnicity or whether Jesus even existed, I really was glad to have you on the show at this point in time. As, mm. Whether people are agnostic or atheist, or whatever the case might be, or whether they're just running around purchasing their, their gifts, that we do kind of celebrate in a way or take advantage, even to use that term of this, 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 this political economic um, calendar season. You share with, just before you move from the, the first reason for why you're a secular Jesus follower, and again, it's, you've been inspired to hang out with the wrong people. Share with us a little bit about your interpretation of Jesus's uh, frequency of hanging out with the wrong people. Well, we see that all the time. And um, one story that I turn to over and over again when I think about this um, ethic of Jesus, is the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Mm -hmm. Now, you probably know better than I do that there are multiple things we can learn from that story and multiple forms of inspiration. But one that stands out for me is that um, when he's telling this story, and think about the audience to whom he's telling this story, he's really um, raising up as an ethical hero somebody who is of the, quote, wrong type, Mm -hmm. namely a Samaritan. Mm -hmm. And people who... um, Think about that phrase, the Good Samaritan today, they might just have sort of a generic understanding of it. You know, it's to be a Good Samaritan is to be a good guy, help somebody in need. And that's all valid, of course. But if you focus on it more closely and think about who the Samaritans were to Jesus's own community and his audience, they were the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And here he tells this story. It's so intriguing. He tells the story in which uh, people from Jesus's own community are sort of the bad guys in the story, you know, namely these religious authorities who walk right on past this badly beaten up victim who's lying on the side of the road. And who is it who stops? It's somebody of the wrong Mm. type, the wrong Mm. community, the wrong religion. There's even an ethnic um, element there. Mm -hmm. Somebody of the wrong ethnicity Mm -hmm. is the one who stops and, and does the right thing. So this must've been very challenging and surprising and maybe even upsetting to people who are hearing Jesus teach and preach in those days. And um, that's that's powerful for me. Yes. And then there are many other examples of Jesus hanging out with the wrong people and honoring the humanity of these people, even tax collectors yes. and so forth. So I think this boundary-breaking example that we see from Jesus over and over again in the New Testament is uh, is an inspiration. And it's also striking how applicable yes. it is to the stuff we struggle with today. It's that's kind of right. amazing that you know this teacher from 2,000 years ago would be grappling with the same stuff that messes us up today. Yes, yes, yes. And, and it could be because we haven't followed the 
his his precepts early, yeah. early, early, earlier on. Yeah, we've never quite uh, caught on to <laughs> doing things this way, and partly it's because it's so hard. But you um, alluded to the fact that we're it's almost Christmas. Yes. And so a lot of people are thinking and talking about, you know, this figure of Jesus. Yes. And um, I think that's good because um, even though I'm not um, a Jesus follower in the Christian way, in the conventional way, as you know, I think that this figure of Jesus has so much to offer yes, in terms yes. of insight on life and inspiration. And so this is a really good time to be having this conversation, thinking about what Jesus means, who Jesus is, and um, what it could mean to us today in our efforts to sort of figure out and resolve these incredible conflicts and issues that we have. Indeed. And that's why I'm so appreciative and of your book and it's available. I uh, downloaded it on a, I went to the Kindle and you, as people might know, this is a plug for Amazon and Kindle, but you can download the, the Kindle app for free. And it's actually, it's, you can read the book. Uh, it's easy to read the book on the, the Kindle application. So you don't have to actually buy the Kindle app or the Kindle uh, uh, piece of, of equipment. You, you can listen to it as well. I recorded and, it uh, and, just and a couple audio. blocks from here. And that's tremendous. At Firehouse. What's the last part of that Firehouse something, which is a studio? Uh, no, there's a Firehouse 19 that's a jazz place, but I don't think that that's that place. It's, it's, a, it's a club and a, a studio. Firehouse 12. Firehouse 12. Uh, Lucy, let's take a, a brief brief music break. We've talked about a lot of cogent, and I want to give the our listeners a chance to kind of just uh, take a deep breath, and we'll go to a brief music break, and we'll be right back. Actually, Lucy, we had an agreement. You're gonna, you're gonna use your. And I love Lucy's voice. This you can tell I'm into a very transparent mode here. But it's a holiday season where you want to give gifts, and I think and gifts are not only something material, uh, but they can also be verbal and also just expressions of your gift and your and your thankfulness for things. So I'm very, very thankful of the gift that you have, Lucy, and I'm very thankful for the gift of the gift of our relationship. Oh, thank you, Tom. I feel like I should start offering to do voicemail messages for people. You should and charge them. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, um, so that was Phil E. Brown and the Top Notch Ensemble. We were listening to "Go with Me, Come with Me, Come Go with Me," um, and uh, and they're a, a local group, a, a local jazz group, and I think they're just fantastic. They, they are indeed. Uh, Phil, Phil's a good friend, and again, talk. And he's been playing here around town for at least two, if not three, and quite frankly, maybe even four decades, but at least 
at least for three decades. So it's really a pleasure for you to kind of spotlight him. Tom, we were just uh, chatting about the five reasons why you are a secular Jesus follower. And this was in the Huffington Post, which was widely cir- circulated, as you referenced. Uh, the first uh, reason you, you referenced was I have been inspired to hang out with the wrong people. And then you went on to say, for number two, that you've been um, become cognizant of the futility of violence. You've been become cognizant of the futility of violence. You do love words, by the way, but the, but the futility of violence, what's, the, what's that all about? It seems that when we turn to violence to solve our problems, that it only perpetuates the problem, namely violence. That's something I dwelt on a lot when I was doing the research and writing the book. And as you know, Tom, there's a chapter I devote to this issue of violence and what we can learn from Jesus on this um, vexing matter. Um, Killer Instinct is the name Mm. of that chapter. Mm Mm-hmm. And so what I see over and over again is that when we turn to violence as a solution, we just create the, we lay the groundwork then for more violence. This seems to be um, an ongoing cycle that human beings have struggled with for who knows how many millennia, mm-hmm. probably going back to day one, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that um, Jesus spoke so powerfully and so creatively into this problem, which obviously they had big time in his day too, right? Yes. And um, I learned a lot from looking at some of the theologians who've unpacked Jesus's approach to this and Jesus's teachings on this, especially on um, Walter Wink, who's um, now the late Walter Wink. But um, it's interesting to see, too, how um, Martin Luther King Jr. really um, applied yes. the Jesus teaching and showed us what it could look like in practice mm-hmm. in a situation where he was leading um, a fight for social justice and racial yes. justice. Yes. And um, if he was looking around at his options, I think you could see very clearly that violent options were a non-starter. I mean, they weren't going to get anywhere with that. As I say in that chapter, though, that was maybe um, freeing and maybe good because it forced MLK and those who were um, working with him to be more creative yes. and to find um, nonviolent solutions. And I think they modeled it really powerfully and in a way that was powerfully informed by Jesus. And... Um, as we think about more contemporary situations too, including the big issue we have in our country now about the proliferation of guns and the endless conflicts about gun control and what to do about these mass shootings that happen and these shootings that happen every day Mm -hmm. with the statistics just piling up. The numbers are staggering. And not to mention about Aleppo. Not to mention that horrible thing that's happening right now as we talk today. And so sometimes you might feel hopeless. I mean, can we ever evolve up and out of this endless cycle of violence? You might feel depressed and think that this is just part of the human condition and we're powerless to do anything about it. And sometimes I feel that way too. Mm -hmm. But um, if we're looking for hope and optimism and if we're looking for new approaches, I think uh, Jesus's teachings are powerfully applicable here. And it's the idea of of using what I call creative nonviolence, you know, tough nonviolence where we really... um, need to have some spine and some guts to do it. And I think that is what offers the best hope of transformation if we're ever going to evolve up and out of this cycle of violence. Yes, And, 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 and turning the other cheek is something that most of the mm-hmm. audience has heard about, but it's really interesting to focus on that and think about what that meant and how that applies to what we're going through now. And, and, and folks forget that. I shouldn't say forget, but I, I want to take the opportunity to, to remind or just to, to share that during the the Jesus historical period, you had a, a 
a very severe oppressor. You know, the heels were on the on the throats. So you had mm-hmm. the, the Roman Empire, and, and we we we've seen Ben Hur and other things. But any re- research or reading about the the effects of the Roman Empire on some people is, is not a pleasant situation. Uh, so yeah, the political context, social context, the economic context, the, the reality that this Jesus figure emerged from, we can't dismiss how courageous those acts were under those circumstances, separate and apart from, of course, the, the, uh, the crucifixion. So, but, but, uh, but yeah, live by the sword, die by, die by the sword. Uh, you mentioned, and just let, before I go to the, to the next, to the next point, um, or, or, or you, you had five, five, uh, reasons why you're a secular Jesus follower. The, um, evolution aspect talk about this evolution aspect that you've alluded to two or three times whether we as a species can become more peaceful rather than self-destructive we know about us as a species creating something called the these weapons of mass destruction so just say some more about the hope that you feel or or that you strive to kind of program yourself to 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 believe in well if we're going to put on the lenses of optimism i think we can see some signs of progress and some signs of, of hope. I was just thinking about this this morning because of an article I read, but if we think back on the last century of history, you know, it's helpful to have a big perspective. We had these just horrible cataclysmic military conflicts in the, ni- in the 20th century, in the 1900s. Yeah. World War I, World War II. We haven't had anything on that scale. Thank goodness. We had the atomic weapons used for the one and only time in history at the end of World War II. Thank goodness they have not been used again. Obviously, we need to remain ever vigilant because if they ever were used, it would be a cataclysm of unimaginable um, proportions, which yes. is unimaginable human suffering and mm-hmm. death. Mm-hmm. And so we can't be complacent. But um, we have seen some examples where we've made progress when it comes to um, when it comes to violence, yes. and we do see sterling examples, inspiring examples in history where nonviolence has been used successfully and i would hope that we'd go back to them again when things seem lost indeed when we have a shortage of inspiration and again and again i would go back to the teachings of jesus and the way that mlk implemented them Mm -hmm. in a way Mm -hmm. that was so effective and so creative i mean obviously violence was not an option but they were able to use nonviolent resistance yes to really gain power when they had none and to appeal to people's morals into their consciences Indeed. in a way that was incredibly effective. It wasn't easy. I mean, MLK and the people who were with them had to put their bodies on the line yeah, and their lives. And right. some were even killed. Right. Many, and they right. had to endure beatings, for example. And so it was tough nonviolence and it was wily creative nonviolence, but it really did work. Yes. And um, I think we could use some of that now when we think about the problems we have. You mentioned Jesus's teaching uh, live by the sword, die by the sword. Well, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. And I used that in a column recently when I was thinking about the proliferation of guns and how there's this argument that, well, if we need to be safe from guns, we need more guns to be safe from guns. <laughs> and when you take just a half a step back and look right. at that, you can see the absurdity. And the headline in that column was just a couple words different from the Jesus teaching. It was live by, live by the gun, die by the gun. Yes, yes, yes. And this is so helpful. Again, you're listening to the Tom Ficklin show, and I had the pleasure of chatting with Tom Crattenmaker, the uh, the author of Conf- what's the name of the, the your book again? Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower. Confessions of a Secular. I love the way I love for authors that kind of 
can hear the pride because again, when you whether you, whether you've written a book, whether you've written a book and it's been published, whether you've written a book and some, and you publish it, people have read it. To write something that the author pride, it's I guess love to, to talk to authors and kind of see their 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 eyes light up and their 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 lips part and the smile, just the intonation when they they say the articulate the, the title of their of their book. So again, congratulations for, so for doing So depending doing on this. the context, sometimes I, I put the emphasis on a different word. Indeed. Sometimes it's confessions of a secular Jesus follower yes. or confessions of a secular Jesus follower. Indeed. And and, and it changes that, the meaning a little bit. That, that's, that's why I love your title. You mentioned the uh, third reason that you're a secular Jesus follower is that you've been persuaded to worry less and trust more. And you kind of alluded to that just a few seconds ago, but if you could elaborate again that you've been persuaded to worry less and trust more. Yeah, that's hard. Anxiety is one of the biggest um, problems we have in American society these days. And this is something that we um, experience both individually and as an entire society. And this is something that, uh, that I struggle with too. So um, working on this and contemplating it and writing this uh, chapter in the book was, was helpful to me. Um, if we look at what's happening socially, if we look at politics, we can see that anxiety yes. is such a driver. And if you unpack um, this last presidential election and if you examine reasons for this Trump phenomenon, I think you can see the role that anxiety plays. Mm-hmm. And one thing I've been saying is that when fear and anxiety are the things that are driving us, we don't often think the best way. We're not our best selves when it comes to using our powers of um, logic and reasoning. When things are fear-based, they often come out in a bad way. Mm -hmm. And I know that works on an individual level for me too. I've been very trying very hard in my life to um, differentiate between worry on one hand and productive, Mm -hmm. complex Mm -hmm. thinking on the other Mm -hmm. hand. And action. And interestingly enough, Jesus addressed that, right? Jesus Mm -hmm. talked about the ills of worry and how that can be such a um, such a life draining experience that we go through as human beings. He talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, yes, and the the, the worrying can not add a single cubit to the length or quality of of our lives. Uh, that that's so fascinating. I had shared with you, I kind of put on Facebook. I'm not sure if you saw it. I tagged you about the the uh, the fifty laws of Mott in, in the Egyptian culture, which you know predated uh, Christianity. There was a there's a list of not only 10 commandments, but, but 50 commandments and, and not worrying is, is, is one of those. And again, that's why I love the, your book. Um, because again, even if you're an atheist or you're even not interested in what the, the type might be turned off by the title, once one reads it, it's, uh, it's fascinating because you, for example, I read part of it to be a, a current event, um, news report. So specifically you reference Michael Brown, you meant, you reference Trayvon Martin, I believe. Uh, Tamir Rice, you reference. I do in the uh, in my chapter yeah, about sh- race sh- issues. Sh- share something about that. That that really caught my attention. Not to say that every chapter didn't cut, catch my attention, but obviously I pay particular focus to to those uh, episodes. As you know, race is one of the big struggles we have in our in our culture right now. And there's, to my eyes, so much that's happening in society when it comes to race. It's just wrong, and we see the dehumanization of people. We see injustice. We see a lot of pain and um, agony. It's kind of confusing too, Tom, because just eight years ago, it was a really um, bright moment when it comes to American history mm-hmm. and the issue of race. I mean, for God's sake, Barack Obama was elected president. Mm-hmm. 
eight years ago. And it seemed like such a hopeful moment. Some people were even tempted to think that, you know what, race is now a solved problem. It's mm -hmm. now a post-racial time. And there were people that, um, people I knew who were saying that, you know, it's, um, I'm colorblind now and it's a post-racial society. And this was in the media too. And um, we see that that is so powerfully, unfortunately, not the case. In a way, we can see how um, Obama's um, election was really confronting for a lot of people. And in the um, eight years since then, we've seen many heartbreaking stories about racism becoming more conspicuous again. Indeed, indeed. And, and kind of a backlash. And um, it really troubles me and saddens me when I think about all the things that have happened with regard to race. You mentioned people like Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown. Unfortunately, we've had a lot of black people killed for ways that I would um, not reduce to, but in ways that had almost everything to do with their race mm -hmm. and about somebody's wanting to dehumanize them, to see only their race and then to make assumptions, really negative and dangerous assumptions about them based on their race. And then perhaps feeling fear or hate or something and feeling this need to kill them, which is heartbreaking. Yes. And I mean, you, you referenced the police officer in terms of the Mike Brown situation and, and his comments. Yeah. I mean, I think he literally dehumanized Mike Brown. If you look back at what this officer had to say about um, Mike Brown, it's, it's striking. He talked about um, Mike Brown seeming to him like this super powerful, almost superhuman force who is also non-human in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that officer referred to uh, Brown as a demon, mm -hmm. seeming like a demon to him. So as I said in that chapter, he literally demonized Mike Brown and explaining why he felt the need to um, yes. use his gun and shoot him. And then they left his body lying on the street there for hours, which is such an undignified way to treat somebody's, treat somebody's body. And I can see why this was so upsetting to Indeed. people in that neighborhood and seemed to be making a really powerful and, and horrible statement. I mean, this, this is painful stuff that our culture has been going through, but it's not just this Tom. I mean, these are really um, headline grabbing, powerful images that we have in our mind. But if you look at the data too, you can see yes. um, the many ways in which there is not racial equity in which we don't have racial justice. And if we look at the metrics that have to do with um, quality of life issues, there's just a huge disparity for the version of American life that black people are going through on one hand and that white people are going through on another hand. And what does Jesus have to say about that? I think Jesus compels me and us to see everybody as a 100% human human being, mm -hmm. regardless of their racial background, their religion, their gender, you could go on and on, their um, sexual identity. He compels us to see everybody as a 100% human human, human mm -hmm. being, mm -hmm. all equal, all deserving of respect and our concern and our care, all having dignity. And he treated people like that yes. over and over again in these um, stories in the Bible. And he taught things that compel us to see life and to see other people this way. And then um, as I do in the book, when we um, map this onto the reality we have in front of us today, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm this lack of Jesus justice is just, is just glaring mm, mm, and it's very hard to bear. Mm, mm, and mm. we see over and over again, how we don't have that in our, in our world today. Mm. And it's fascinating to think about um, what would it look like if we could um, take this ethic of Jesus 
whether we're religious or not. If we could take this ethic and try to implement it and map it onto what ails us as a society today. And I'm convinced that it would be transformative. Indeed. That it would turn Indeed. things upside down and, and inside out in all the ways that we need. And, and I, I, I say this very passionately, and I'm convinced of this, regardless of what somebody's religious ideas might be mm-hmm. about Jesus, where they might be theologically, where they might be um, on the scale in terms of their religious identity, whether they think Jesus was God or just a wise teacher. Mm-hmm. I think this applies. See, that, that, and that, that's the key. I, uh, I've had the pleasure of teaching this past semester and will be continuing at Gateway Community College. It's a, a requisite course on, it's a, a kind of a, a mixed title, public speaking, uh, critical thinking, et cetera. But the, and, and I chat with the students about what, what, what irritates them, what they're interested in. And the social justice theme emerges, regardless of what they say that they want to do, we, you can kind of hear the, the, the social justice theme coming through and I also went to divinity school when, in light years ago when... Yeah, you went to Yale Divinity School, rumor, yay! Rumor has it. <laughs> and uh, Black Liberation Theology was just emerging. Then James Cone book, uh, James Cone book, James yeah, I've read Cone's some of book his stuff. just came out. So again, Jesus as a liberator and a, a social justice uh, warrior is certainly something that I've, I've been early exposed to in terms of that story. So I appreciate what you're saying. But, but in terms of putting on the optimistic lens, and you referenced that earlier... Yeah, people have, I, I've been encountering, the, particularly the younger generation, and how, how they've adopted, we can see it through Black Lives Matter, but how they've adopted this, the, the social justice, the need, perhaps now more than ever, they see that to be part of their life moving forward. Um, Lucy, let's take a brief, brief um, music interlude, and then we'll be right back with the Tom Ficklin Show and really just kind of wrap up with my good friend Tom Krattenmaker.
We are back. We are back again. Now, Lucy, we know that that was, you, you were, I'm, are you a musician? Do you play an instrument, by the way? No. No? Well, I, I pretend to, but we know that what we just heard was not composed by us. But for 2017, we're going to find something. I'll get a tambourine or something for you. Yeah. I, that sounds great. <laughs> that sounds great. That was, uh, that was Nick DeMaria with Decoy. Great. And, and Nick, Nick's a, a, a good buddy. There's so many folks here in New Haven that we've been able to spotlight. And again, just a brief shout out to Paul Bass and Lucy Gelman and the whole crew, uh, New Haven Independent, the radio station, in terms of they're just really lifting up what the, the, the liberating energy of information without, without it being censored, without it being contrived, controversial perhaps. But I would like to say the word that kind of resonates with me is liberating and illuminating. Every show, Lucy, in my mind, has that undercurrent. It's really important. But but Tom, as we wrap up, we were just chatting about, and again, I've read read the book over the weekend and I've heard some of your lectures, but your first chapter and, and your last chapter kind of connect in a very a uh, very cogent way. And that's again your writing style is really provocative and I think easy for people to kind of begin to to digest in their own mind. But but your 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 last concluding chapter really kind of stands out in my mind in terms of bringing it all bringing it all together. And what I take up in um in that chapter and a little bit in the introduction to the book in the beginning is to what degree is it um, appropriate or allowable or quote unquote legal for a non-religious person to quote, follow Jesus. That's where a lot of the uh, debate has happened since my Mm -hmm. book came out and which uh, the part of the book that might seem most fascinating. So when we think about this, it's important to realize like, what is my, my own context Mm. for my following Jesus and the key thing there is to understand that it is a secular context, yeah. which means that I'm not religious. I'm not part of um, a church community and I don't engage in um, religious practices. And the resurrection does not have meaning for you. you don't get symbolic separate. meaning. It's symbolic but, meaning, but not, but didn't actually happen in you. Right. And so it's a really interesting question. Is it legal for somebody and meaning, can it be meaningful mm-hmm. for a secular person to follow Jesus? And of course, I say yes. Mm. Say it, say it, say it. Yes. Name and it, fact, claim it. Only, Name it, claim it, Tom. Well, <laughs> not only is it um, legal, but it's incredibly helpful. Good, go ahead. And I think it's help that I can really use. Mm-hmm. And I think it does address something that we experience in the secular community that's important to put our, to put our eyes on and think mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. And um, as readers will know when they read the book, I do have some critique of my own community, the secular community. I look at what's going on in secular America, and that's an important question because secular America is getting really big, Tom. Yes, yes. I mean, the yes. numbers over the past 20 years have grown in a really astonishing way, and we're at the point now where the religiously unaffiliated are a quarter of the American population. Yes. So these are questions that matter. There's you know, phrase, what's going on on that side of the tracks? People might hear the phrase, the, the nuns, as, what is it? The nuns, as in no religious affiliation. Yes, yes. And um, if you look at younger adults, it's almost 40%. Mm-hmm. And this is the cohort that is sort of aging towards center stage. Yes. And more and more, they're going to be dictating what's going on, setting the tone in our culture and getting close to the point where it's half of, of the population yes. in that demographic. And so the thing that I'm really devoting myself to now is examining what's going on in secular America mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and looking at what I call um, a quiet crisis of meaning and inspiration and ethical instruction and input. And I think we um, need to address these things and look at these things. And for me personally, and I think this could apply to many people, 
I think that the ethic and example and story of this figure of Jesus is really helpful and compelling and powerful and so applicable. I'm not an exclusivist, Tom. I don't say Mm -hmm. that Jesus is the only source Mm -hmm. we can turn to. As I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, I don't care what people source, if they're going to find these good ethics and values and, you know, this, this meaning and this inspiration. I do think Jesus is a uniquely compelling source for me, at least. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yes, absolutely. Um, I am allowed to follow Jesus in my secular way. Looking at it, looking at it very pragmatically. Mm -hmm. I mean, who the heck is going to stop me? (laughs) I mean, this is not legit in a church context, obviously. But I'm not looking at it or engaging it in that way. Yes. And yes. truly, I don't. I can't really be a heretic because I'm not part of a church community, mm-hmm. and there's nobody who can stop me. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. when people look at what's problematic about this claim of mine and this pursuit of mine, that's really not it. Yes. I'm allowed to follow Jesus. Yes. Yes. The weakness of it and the problem with it is something else, and that has to do with how real can I make it? Mm. Um, how can I make sure that? it's got real depth and force that it's got reinforcement and that it's something I take seriously because if not taken seriously, this could just be, Oh, that's a nice idea. Tom pat me on the head, but it's not really meaningful or sustainable. And so what I ask is how do we make it real and make it sustained and make it transformative. And, And that's what comes, comes through and through each of your chapters, even your chapter titles are, really so so much on point uh oftentimes you'll read a chapter you'll look at a chapter title and the author will try to oh be creative or the the the, the, the flout their academic credentials but you're just reading your titles alone even if you don't, don't pick up the book it's reading the titles has such, such meaning share, share a few of the titles if you would well one's titled quick. high anxiety mm-hmm. and that's where we look at um social and personal anxiety and how the ethic of jesus applies there's one about violence, as we discussed, which is called um, Killer Instinct. Then there's Bad Company, where we talk about the value of hanging out with the, the quote-unquote wrong people. And um, there's a, a chapter near the end, which has to do with the stuff we've been talking about most recently, which is found in translation as opposed to lost in translation. Mm-hmm. And this is where we talk about what Jesus can mean to us secular people today and how could we can find a new story about Jesus and maybe rediscover and refine Jesus in a secular way and find something that can be really helpful to us in our engagement with um, the issues that we struggle with as individuals and society. And I think that we can use whatever source of input and inspiration we can get because, because we need them. And, and indeed, Tom, and we're, we're kind of wrapping up. And as you mentioned, inspiration and fellowship and communion and well, it gets this fellowship and people kind of coming to get together and talking. You're involved I want to kind of conclude in this note and give you the last word with the, is it the, the Yale Humanist Society? There's with the a- Yale Humanist Community. And that is where I'm fortunate enough to be able to have the, the conversations and the company where I can really try to put meat on these bones that I'm talking mm-hmm. about in the book, where I can really incorporate these practices into my life and really change based on these teachings of Jesus, because I'm convinced you cannot do it alone. Mm-hmm. If somebody is mm-hmm. serious about, being a Jesus follower, whether they're inside or outside of a church context, they need to develop practices and habits and reinforcement. And I think that we need the company of other people to hold us accountable and to set us straight when we go astray, to remind us of our commitments and to help help us see 
how it's going to play out in our lives. And, and uh, although the, it's the Yale Humanist Society, it's not a closed or exclusive group. The public is invited. Right. It's open to the greater New Haven community. And it's obviously the conversations are not focused on Jesus, but they have to do with our ethics, our lives, and how we make meaning out of them. And this is the context in which I'm developing these ethics that I talk about in the book. Great, great. Just uh, want to wish everyone, a, I want to give Tom the last word, but I want to wish everyone really a happy season, a happy Kwanzaa season. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Kwanzaa, Tom. But, I am a little bit. Uh, but again, you can see how regardless of what path one takes, there's ways to kind of fulfill yourself, to transform yourself, to, to help lead, hopefully transform the collective kind of enterprise of our body, mind, and spirit. Uh, but any, any kind of parting words you want to share? Again, you have, you've already committed to coming back in 2017, so that's, that's, a, that, that's firm. It's now in terms of the public record and archives. But as we kind of conclude, any last words that you'd like to share? And again, thank you for being on the show. I do think that it's a new time we're entering as a culture. There are profound shifts. And I think it's time for a new conversation about this figure of Jesus. Yes, and, and, and the figure of us. That's it, everybody. Lucy, thank you once, once again for everything. And Tom, we're going to see you in 2017. See you in 2017. Happy Kwanzaa. Merry Christmas. Amen. Happy Hanukkah.